Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Welcome to this episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. My name is Patrick Custer, and I'm your host. So glad that each and every one of you are here. And I am thrilled to have the honor of hosting our guest on today's show to kick off the year. He's one of the founding authorities helping people to heal from intimacy disorders like compulsive sexual behavior and related drug abuse. He's also a nationally acclaimed speaker and author of 10 books on sexuality, technology, and intimate relationships, including Sex Addiction 101, Out of the Doghouse, and Protopendence. He hosts a show called Sex, Love, and Addiction Podcast that is currently in the top 10 of U.S. Addiction Health Podcasts. And last but certainly not least, he is the Chief Clinical Officer of Seeking Integrity that we will learn more about throughout this episode. Dr. Robert Weiss. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Patrick. I really, any opportunity I have to help people grow and share, you know, I'm glad to be here, really. Well, thanks again. You know, I'll start off um, by saying, you know, I got into the behavioral health field because of my own path and um, getting sober from chemical addiction and started volunteering and then working in the field. And when I transitioned into other areas and started to go to different conferences and learn more, you were one of the first people that I got exposed to speaking lectures and um, teaching on the issues we're talking about today. And it opened my eyes in such a way that paved, it paved the way truly for me to be a more effective person in this field um, and, and everything that I'm doing. And so, you know, for that, I'm really grateful, but I say that to say, I'm really excited because I believe you are truly one of the most gifted people when it comes to helping the average person who maybe doesn't struggle with these things or, um, be a more understanding person and supportive person for people who do. And of course your voice is something that people who are currently struggling um, can identify with. And so um, saying all of that, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. And thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Patrick. And I'm glad we had the opportunity to know each other before. Yep, absolutely. Really, because you're much less of a mess than you were then. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, I agree. I agree. Uh, no problem. So I hope, you know, I hope that's that, a joke, by the way. And, well, but it's true. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that we can all say that as time goes on. Uh, that's the goal, right? So, um, but anyway, so, you know, I wanted to kick things off by mentioning that you talk a lot about integrity and um, there is a thread woven through, you know, your, your talks, your writing, um, your story. And so through that lens, I just wondered if you might take us through the beginning of, you know, where, wherever you want to begin with telling us about your story for those who don't know you. Well, may I just, if you don't mind, I'd like to just define the word integrity yeah. as, as it means, what it means to me. And, and I teach this to all the clients because I think it is the essence of recovery, to be honest with you, which is um, when we are addicted, we live disparate lives. You know, there's the part that I know about, there's the part you know about, there's the things I do in the dark, there's, you know, we have multiple lives as addicts and we hide and we, we don't let people know things. And so we're disintegrated, you know, in, integrity is, comes from the word integration and integration is about bringing separate parts together. So when I stop, hiding my acting out or my drinking, when I stop keeping secrets from my spouse or my family, when I become one person with one story, no lies, no secrets, then I have integrity. And that was always who I wanted to be, a man with integrity. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of kicks off some of the story that you want. Yeah. That's good um, 
So I was born into a family with profound mental illness. Um, my mother was bipolar and the worst kind, uh, very psychotic, uh, you know, would get up in the three in the morning and, and be throwing things at the walls and run down the street naked, you know, and they would come with the ambulance and take her away. And then I'd say to my family, what happened to mom? And like, oh, she's not feeling well. You know, like that's the families we grow up in. Nobody really talks about it, but you're the kid and you see it in front of you. And I think, and my mom probably went in the hospital which means mental institution, I would say six times before I was 16 or something like that. So I believe just from a therapeutic process that what I never really learned was to trust people. What I learned from an early age is the only one you can trust is yourself because there's crazy people and there's people who don't tell you anything. And as a kid, you see everything, you know what's going on. And so I always had this feeling of, of split, of dissonance, you know, and then I started like any addict to go out and live my own split life. And I remember being a good kid in school and a nice kid at home. And then there was this kid who went down to New York because I lived in New York City and, you know, would be up looking for people all night. I'm one of those guys who was out in the park at three in the morning looking for men to hook up with because I'm a sex addict. So, you know, I have that background and, you know, I counted hundreds and hundreds of partners between 14 and 21, I would say, um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds because I was into anonymous, very casual. And men are often willing to do that. So I could rack up really high numbers, you know, and when I went back to count it. It was, it was a lot of people. But um, interestingly, I think a lot of people, and I'm not going to take kudos for this, but one of the things that really brought me into recovery was I didn't want to live the way I'd been living. Mm. And I wanted to have a relationship and I wanted to be a better person. And, and I think, honestly, that's unusual because most of the people that I work with, they come in because they're in a crisis. You know, they got kicked out of their family, they lost their job, they got a DUI, their wife left, you know, whatever that is. And I really went into it because I, I couldn't have what I wanted, which is I wanted a loving home and a loving relationship, something I'd never had in my life other than friendships. Mm. And I wasn't able to create it. And I was so naive, this is really funny to me, that I would go have sex with someone, you know, some stranger in the morning. And then I would go on a date in the evening. And the guy would say, oh, what'd you do today? And I was like, oh, I stopped off on sex with a few people. And then, and I never understood why they didn't want to date me again. I mean, you know, that's how, I swear to God, that's where I was. Yeah. So I've grown a little bit yeah. since then. Um, but what brought me to the field was AIDS. You know, I started going to 12-step meetings before HIV really took off, sadly. And a lot of men at that time were in meetings because they didn't want to get HIV. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to avoid sexual behavior that would drive them over the edge into getting ill. And I was hearing that all around me. And then I started to think, well, you know, I want to do something with this because men are dying and women are dying. And many of them because of their sexual behavior. But people say, well, why don't they put on a condom? Why don't they have safer sex? And I knew why some of them didn't. Some of them is because they were so caught in the, up in those addictive moments that they were unable to take care of themselves, like someone getting in a car drunk. And I thought, this is something I can do something about. Um, there's a leader in my field who had really founded the field, this guy named Patrick Carnes. Mm -hmm. And he was and is a heterosexual man who used to wear green leisure suits from Minneapolis. You know, he'll tell you that. That's where he sort of how he started. Mm -hmm. And so if you picture that guy, even in a better suit, trying to talk to a bunch of gay men in New York City about their sex lives, <laughs> that didn't go over so well. Because yeah. there's a long history in that community of you're telling yeah. us how we're supposed to be. And that didn't go over well, especially in 1985. But I was a voice I thought that men could listen to and women, you know, in this arena. And I was younger. Um, and just to, so a little bit about that, I went and I applied to graduate school and they said to me, um, you know, thank you, Mr. Weiss, really appreciate your interest, but you don't have enough experience in the mental health field. And I thought, have you met my mother? Like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. But um, so what I did for two years is I went and I worked in mental hospitals. I worked with the really troubled people, you know, forget addicts. I worked with people who threw the shit at the walls and the people who, you know, are on the streets and the people who are get, and for the, in fact, I'll say this to a lot of therapists, a lot of therapists will say to me, uh, sorry about my dog. We're it's okay. It is a okay. lot of therapists. Will, a lot of therapists will say to me, um, you know, I have a really crazy client. Oh my God, they're so crazy. And I'm like, you know what? I know what crazy looks like when people are, doing some of the things I saw in the psychiatric hospitals. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. You just have a neurotic lady from Beverly Hills who's not happy with her life. You know, that's not crazy. Yeah. So I think I learned as I treat, encourage clinicians to really do that deeper work of working with really, really wow. troubled people. Because once you have that in your head, you'll never, never not remember it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I was working in psych hospitals and people would say to me, 
and I would work doubles and you know, I was trying to make money and they were, you know, I'd work a whole weekend or whatever that was. And friends would say, you know, how can you work in a place like that? And I would look around and say, I don't know. It seems like home to me mm-hmm. because it's how I grew up with crazy people. And I do think that's how many of us, and I don't know about you, Patrick, find our skill set. You know, there are things that I grew up with that no one else could put up with. And they say to me, how can you work with people with these kind of problems? It's like, because I don't have that sensitivity to how crazy this is and how uncomfortable this is because I grew up with crazy and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot that really is true for many good professionals in the addiction and mental health field is that we can go places that other people can't because we've experienced what it's like and we can tolerate talking about molestation or rape or child abuse or whatever it is and we don't go running out the door and we don't say things like i don't know how you do your job because all how how could i if i did this i'd be taking it home every day and you know it's another thing as i learned in youth to deal with what i was doing with and then cut it off like it never happened you know i learned that skill set mm. so for me the end of the day is like i don't even remember what happened you know i've i've moved on mm-hmm. so in anyway, so i think there are innate skill sets that a lot of us, in fact, just to say it, I think all of us choose our professions based on our skill sets. You know, I know people who are real caregivers and guess what they did in childhood and now they're doctors. You know, I know families where there's a lot of intellectual argument and you had to be on top and they became lawyers, you know, and yeah. I'm not saying everyone's a professional at all, but I do think we seek out what we do well. And what I could do well was work with crazy people. And having had the addiction lifted to some degree, because I started going to meetings in 1985 and I was 26 years old. And I'm 60 now. So I've been involved in the in recovery for 35, almost going on 40 wow. years. When I finally did get my license, um, I realized that there were, and that was in, I started school in the early 90s. I was licensed in 95, I can't, which was a while ago. I've been licensed like 26 years or something. I started to realize how many clinicians didn't know anything about sex. And, you know, it's interesting because I went to graduate school and I think at the master's level, I'm almost positive in the United States, we teach about everything. We teach about everything, but we don't teach our students about sex. Mm -hmm. We don't teach our students about addiction. And what does any student find out when they go out in the world and they start working with some agency? They see people who are being unfaithful and cheating and sexually acting out, and they see people drinking and using. Mm-hmm. And I was really aware that we weren't prepared for that, and I was. So it enabled me to enter the field, um, I think, with a skill set from the past and from the present that that gave me a, gave a richness to the work before I even really got into it. And I'll just say that also. I think that there are many clients who they go through high school, they go to graduate school, you know, they're done by the time they're 28 and they're out in the world being therapists. And I love them. They're wonderful. We call them green peas because they're so new, but you need that depth of life experience to really be a good clinician. I think because, um, you need to be able to go where other people can't, and you need to understand how troubled people end up where they are. Um, and that's not something that you can do unless you've experienced it. So yeah. anyway, do you want more story? Yeah. I'll give you more story. So one, th- so as far as story is concerned, I think one of the fascinating things I remember you sharing was about how you w- related, um, you know, when you take and observe for those who may not understand, you know, that watching or listening, that may not understand, um, you know, call it what you will, sex addiction, intimacy disorder. Um, you know, there's a lot Impulsive of comp- sexual behavior. Right. There's a lot of names for it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of naysayers that, you know, that are like, that's bullshit, <laughs> you know, and that for lack of better understanding, oh. all kinds of things. And so, um, you know, I wonder if you might t- tell a little bit about how, um, you know, with your story and with the, the traumatic background explaining how that um, puts you into a place of, uh, you know, seeking out the, those sexual relationships. Um, and, you know, that term that you started to talk about the, you know, the prodependency and all of those things, how they're wrapped up together. Well, uh, um, I think just to give a brief moment for how I get to sit here with you, um, when I started the work that I was doing, I started to realize how much the internet was affecting sexual behavior. And I saw how porn at an early age, which, you know, we started to see porn online and I guess in the early nineties, the midnight, somewhere in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before long we got, you've got mail and private chat rooms late at night. And I remember all of that. And um, so I started writing about it because no one else was. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure I wrote the first book on 
problematic sexual behavior online. And I like to write, you know, I grew up in a very isolated environment. So for me to lock myself in my room in the dark and write for five hours is like, again, how I grew up. And so I started writing about this and, it, and then writing more about compulsive sexuality and sexual addiction, all those things. And I started to get attention, you know, and by 98, this is true, I was in Newsweek talking about Bill Clinton. Mm. And did he really have a problem? And, you know, as you say, Patrick, I'm a reasonably good um, interpreter of difficult subjects. I think I can make them very understandable and sometimes even make you laugh when you're talking about masturbation, right. which is not something that is everyone's skill set. And so between writing and being in the media, you know, then I ended up on Oprah, you know, and it just went and went and went. And so how did I end up writing 10 books and opening five, six treatment centers and speaking all over the world? I don't know, <laughs> but that's what's happened. Yeah. And, um, and for me, the goal has always been to help the public not to really influence therapists as much, but to help the public. Mm. So in any case, this issue of sex addiction has been rejected forever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was always a battle for me being in the media. And you know, if someone would sexually act out and they created problems in their life, like an actor or a politician, and then they would go to treatment, people would say, oh, they're just going to treatment because they want an excuse for people to feel bad about them. And I knew that wasn't true because I knew that ever, well, it was true, sorry. I knew that people went to treatment because they wanted people to think they had a problem and not, you know, all of that and to run away from their consequences. And, but, and the media would say, well, they're not really there to work on themselves. And my response was, I don't care why they come. What I care is what they do when they're with mm -hmm. us, you know, and what I'm very, became very motivated by motivated by is excellent treatment. And you and I work together a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I have made many a corporation unhappy because I am not willing to do anything less than excellent. We're dealing with people's lives. I would want an expert if someone had a heart attack. And if you're dealing with infidelity and sexual issues, you know, I want you to work with me and my programs because I think that we do this as well, if not better than most folks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the books, the podcasts, the, you know, all of that sort of just evolved. And, you know, here we sit. Um, as far as the battle for sex addiction, I never questioned the issue because I had it. And I never, by the way, the battle over 30 years about sex addiction and really being about, do you call it compulsive sexual behavior or problematic sexual behavior? Believe it or not, therapists fight about these things because I wrote this book and they call it this. And I, anyway, I was not interested in any of that. I just was interested in talking about the problem and how people were struggling with it. And I ended up talking about it in the media and debating people who had different opinions and different beliefs for all kinds of reasons. But what's happened in the last couple of years because of the internet and the challenges of people having online is we now have a diagnosis. And we have a diagnosis in every country in the world, except the United States and Canada, because we use a different manual. We use something wow. called the DSM to explain mental health disorders. And the rest of the world uses a different, um, a different uh, book to diagnose things. So... What happened in 2018 is the World Health Organization came out and said, compulsive sexuality is a problem. We need to deal with it. People are struggling with porn. And so now when the media calls and says, well, let's debate this sex addiction. I said, no, there's nothing to debate. We have an issue. It's here. We understand it. We have criteria. If you want to talk about what the problem is, I'm glad to talk about it. But I'm no longer interested in 2021 or 2022 to be talking about, uh, does this thing exist? I've been treating it for too long. I think that's accepted. Um, so, yeah, I think the world has changed. Um, there was a time when people didn't understand alcoholism or drug addiction, and now they're kind of there. Um, they didn't really understand gambling and some of the others and the video. Now they're kind of there. And so I think with the porn problem, people are beginning to understand in a larger way how sex can be problematic in the same way as any intensely pleasurable uh, distracting behavior or substance can be addictive. Yeah, I think so too, that, you know, we're seeing an increase, but I would love to, cause <laughs> in my world, I still come across people all the time that are, that challenge me. And they're like, why can you tell me? Cause I bring up all the time. I'm like, you know, we work in the field of, you know, addiction for chemical addiction, eating disorders, mental health, sex addiction. And I'll get, you know, sometimes laughed out of a room because people, I think that you're regular you're run-of-the-mill people that haven't had to deal with it before either professionally or known someone they're like they're just, you're just talking about people who either make bad choices um or who really like sex so to a regular person how do you define problematic sexual behavior when it's uh, when sex starts to interfere with the functionality of your life 
So you're not achieving in school, you're not doing well at work, your marriage or relationship is falling apart, you're not available to the people you love, you're having consequences like STDs or you know, getting in trouble in the workplace because there's porn. I think all addictions are defined by functionality. You know, it's not how much I drink. Mm -hmm. It's not what kind of alcohol I drink. It's what the alcohol and the drinking is doing to my life. And, you know, I can't blame you if you want to get drunk once in a while on a weekend. If it doesn't hurt your life, it's none of my business. I'm not there to call you an alcoholic because you enjoy drinking. But if you come to me and you say, I'm drinking and when I drink, I hit my wife. Or when I drink, I get in my car and I get in trouble and I'm still doing that then that's addiction. When I have seen consequences, I've seen the problems, anyone would have some kind of understanding that it's tied to my behavior. And yet I continue to do it anyway, even though I sort of know better. And what that comes out of it, you know, because a lot of, why would anyone understand the basics of the brain and psychology? I mean, that's not their job. I don't understand anything about putting cabinets together, you know? So, but what I do understand is yeah. that early trauma in life produces problematic adult behavior. I think since Freud, we've sort of known that. And certain kinds of trauma early in life, and I said this earlier, they leave us to not believe in the most basic sense that people will be there for us. Um, what I never learned was one of the earliest stages of human life, which is something we call in the therapy for world basic trust. It's one of the first lessons to a child is when you respond to them consistently and lovingly and you know you do it perfect you don't do it perfectly but for the most part that child is left feeling like they're the center of the universe they're the most important thing in your world and they will come first if they're upset or they need entertainment or they you know they what that turns into is self-esteem it's a sense in the world like people are going to be there for me and i'm going to get along with people and if i need something i turn to people because you had an experience early life mm -hmm. that people can be trusted and you can rely on them for support and to feel better. But the people who become addicts never learned, like myself, we never learned to trust in early life. How could I? My mom was in and out of hospitals. My family was lying to me. You know, all of that. I was my mom's caretaker. So what I never learned is whole much, a whole lot about what's inside of me. And I certainly never learned that I could really depend on other people to be there if I was in trouble because the people I turned to, they were in more trouble than I was. And as a child, I learned up, to, ended up taking more care of my family members than they were taking care of me. So going out in the world as an adult, mm -hmm. when I have a really bad time or really good time, I don't think, oh, I want to run to somebody and tell them all about this. And then they're going to comfort me or make me feel better. Or they're going to cheer for me. You know, as an addict, I say, how can I go off by myself and deal with these feelings? Because in the deepest sense, I don't believe that others are going to have an effect. And so addicts are really people who mm -hmm. do all addicts, in my opinion, are people with intimacy disorders, with early life trauma that taught us that we need to turn to ourselves and our own behaviors and our own distractions, dissociation, fantasy, whatever it is to feel better, rather than turning to people. And, you know, I would say in addition to that, that uh, I'll prove that a little bit, when you bring the most troubled addict or mentally ill person out of their house and you think about where you're going to put them to help them, you put them in a group. Addicts go to 12-step programs. You know, mentally ill people go into groups and therapies. And so it's almost innate as human beings for us to come together in relationship to heal these problems, which in some ways are about relationship. I don't turn to my loved one or my community when I'm struggling. I turn to a bottle. I turn to seeing sex workers. And so this relationship between my lack of trust in people in my life today, because I grew up without a sense of trust in other people, when in people to depend on when I was younger, that plays out in a variety of ways in people's adult lives. Some people drink, some people use, some people gamble. I think that the reason that sex addiction is such a joke is because the idea, first of all, people have trouble saying the word sex. <laughs> Therapists are not trained in mm -hmm. anything about sexuality. So when no. they come, and I mean nothing, I would say 90% of the therapists mm -hmm. I've met, um, well, let me just say this to you, it's my sort of favorite joke about this. Um, I was teaching for the military a number of years ago, and I've had the good fortune of, because there are a lot of sexual problems in the military, and there's hundreds of thousands of sexual abuse cases every year in the military, and not just women. Actually, the majority of the sex abuse cases are men. And they're not uh, molested wow. by gay men. They're, it's more of an authority 
a control, you know, control, more like a prison situation. But anyway, I was working and teaching wow. the military in Okinawa, which I sort of like a lot of fun. I never got to go to these places, to, except I got to teach there. And I was teaching, I was going to teach, and I went up to this colonel who'd invited me, and I said, you know, I'm all the way here from the mainland, and I have all these therapists to teach, and you've invited me, and I was nervous. And I said, I really want to know, Colonel, you know, and plus he had big apple lots and he had that shaved gray hair i mean he was just also a kind of really handsome guy which made me more more confused yeah. but anyway i was really anxious and i went up to him and i said what is it exactly you want to get out of this five-day training with all these therapists and he said and i quote he said son if you can just get these therapists to use the word masturbation i will have considered you a success <laughs> and so what he was saying to me is <laughs> they can't talk about it at all just the basics yeah. of it. And yeah. that is most therapists. Yeah. And to be honest, when we interview people, mm -hmm. when we assess them, when we do what we call uh, psychological evaluations, we talk about the uh, your early mm -hmm. life and family and exercise and school and relationships. We ask you about your eating, your ex you know, your work life, your friendships. We ask about every area of your life, but there's not a standard assessment in the United States that asks about sex. So how can you ask people at eating and childhood and relationships and somehow everything between your belly button and the mid thighs just don't exist. And yet how much emphasis in our lives and relational issues come up around sex and intimacy. So I actually mm -hmm. feel that the field is missing. It's not that we as sex addiction therapists are looking and creating this issue. Um, it's that most therapists don't have a clue about human sexuality. Um, what is a fetish? What is a paraphilia? Yeah. What is sex offending? You know, what is what are trans issues? What is a cisgender? We're just not trained in that. So without that knowledge, it's mm -hmm. easy to say, oh, well, that's just a joke or they, they don't really understand you. You know, so therapists are not trained in my experience, and that's no offense to them. It's just not part of our training unless you seek it out. Mm -hmm. I learned about sex because I went to special classes mm -hmm. and special trainings and got my PhD in sex, which, by the way, Patrick, if you consider how much sex I had as a young person, I learned that from the inside out. And isn't it weird that I got a PhD <laughs> in sex? Because now I understand it from the inside, outside in. So obviously, this has been an issue for me yeah. uh, for a long time. But in any case, yes. you know, I learned about sex and I studied it. So I was able to, and I had these issues. So I was, I am able to really go there, but I don't believe that most therapists understand. And then from the general public, um, nobody's comfortable talking about sex. And it's so much easier to make it yeah. in. When people are uncomfortable, they make things into a joke. Making a joke about something makes it easier for everyone to hear. It's part of why I'm a good speaker because I make lots of jokes. But I think the general public in their discomfort yeah. of talking about out of control sexual behavior, it's much easier to say, oh, that doesn't mm -hmm. exist or that can't be anything or, you know, all of that because uh, because it's uncomfortable. And, and I guess the other piece I'd say about that is when your average person hears about problematic sexual behavior or impulsive sexual behavior, they don't think about somebody picking up a lot of sex workers and spending every day in an adult bookstore. They think about child molestation. They think someone has out of control sexual right. behavior is molesting your kids. And so they don't want to go there and they're uncomfortable with the issue. So people don't really talk about it. And let's face it, how much do we talk about sex in our culture anyway? Did you know that out of 52 states, mandatory, it is mandatory for sex education in 20 of them. So more, so I don't know the numbers, but I would say three fifths of our child population or teen population never learns in school about human sexuality. And then of the 20 states wow. that provide and, and make mandatory sex education in the schools, 12 out of the, 12 out of the 20 require parental permission. Um, and if you're uncomfortable, if you believe this, which is not true, I get nothing else out of this, Patrick, it's not true. When you teach a young person about sex, they do not have more. They have less. When they learn about it, they don't have to go out there as <laughs> I believe they don't that. have to explore everything and say, what is this? They are told they understand. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, where are yeah. children learning about sex in this uh, country? They're learning about it from the pornographers. You know, we are so afraid to talk about it and deal with it, especially with our young people that, you know, you've got 14 year olds looking at porn for hours a day after school, but, but their parents have never talked about sex, you know, so they don't really have a perspective for that. You know, can I draw a parallel there really sure. quick that for me, I can really relate to um, not not with the necessarily the sex thing. I mean, I grew, <laughs> I grew up, at, I was homeschooled K through 12. Mm -hmm. 
and very, very conservative uh, Christian family household where we had sex ed. But I mean, as you can imagine, my parents were teaching. It was all very controlled. So anyway, um, my my parallel there was uh, more so about um, uh, drinking uh, alcohol and drugs. Right. So um, I, I have a family history uh, of heavy alcoholism and my parents knew that. And um, it's, it played out, you know, very close to my oldest brother, right bef- before I came along. And, and so um, we were a dry household and, you know, alcohol was just uh, demonized. Right. And so instead of having conversations of um, how, uh, you know, if, if you're going to, you know, this is, this is our family history right. and we need to be careful instead of having conversations of what, you know, what you're going to enter into being surrounded by in college. And this is how, if you choose to, you can do it a safer way, even though we don't want you to, and we don't support it, but at least know this, you know, for me, by the time I went out on my own, I had no education on drugs, alcohol. I didn't even know the difference between liquor or beer. And I'm not saying this is everybody's experience, but but it's a parallel for me. Just say no. And that didn't, that didn't work for me. And I don't think that that works for anybody when it, if you tell me to say no to something, that's the best way to market that product to me. Well, that's because you're an addict. That, I don't know. About Someone says no. And you say, why not? <laughs> Other people say, you know, don't call, jump right. off that cliff. And oh, okay, that's not a good idea. We're like, well, let's practice that. See if it works. Yeah. You know, that's being an addict. Yeah. So anyway, I couldn't help but just draw that parallel there because I can really relate to what you were just speaking to from, you know, from a different perspective. But, um, you know, there's some real weight to that. But it's very understandable, Mm -hmm. right? We want to shield our children from pain. We want to shield them from bad things. And so there's this concept that if I introduce them to problematic things, that maybe I'm teaching them something that is going to hurt them later. Right. And I would rather protect my child as long as I can. I want to keep them innocent, you know, and I completely understand that. But you're not you're not ruining child's innocence by talking about the problems in the world. You're educating them. It's kind of like you said, Patrick, you're teaching them how to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what drinking is. This is what it does. Some people really enjoy it. You know, in my world, it's more like, uh, you know, there is porn. But that's adult entertainment. And I, you know, I'll say kids, that's entertainment like Star Wars. Nobody really has a laser, you know, sword and nobody really does things in that way with that size, you know, genitals. (laughs) And that's entertainment. And so if you perceive that that's real, which is what a lot of young people do because they don't understand it, then it's going to be a problem. You know, girls are going to think they need to look at that. Boys are going to think they get to do all kinds of unusual and uncomfortable sexual behaviors because that's what they learned was okay Mm -hmm. and so you have this imbalance it's like the drug dealers they had no problem talking to you about sex about drugs the alcohol going in the bar nobody said hey this isn't a good idea Mm -hmm. so you're out in the world and you really don't know about the dangers because your family's trying to protect you but in essence what they're doing is not protecting you and i think that's kind of what you're talking about absolutely yeah, absolutely. So, sorry, I kind of then I interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Patrick, you know, based on all those things, I think what we could say is I'm an expert in intimacy disorder. I think what we could say is I'm an expert in intimacy disorders and problem sexual behavior. And what I have learned most profoundly, I think, over these years is that these are not bad people. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't cheat on my spouse and destroy my family life and put my job at risk um, just to have fun having sex. And if that caused me problems, like somebody got angry with me, I'd probably change my behavior. Just like if you got a DUI, you might think about changing your drinking unless you can't. And that's what's really hard for people to understand. We, our culture understands drugs and alcohol to some degree. We've seen enough famous people, you know, get in trouble with drugs and alcohol, go to treatment, become better people, talk on People Magazine about how their addiction, healed, yeah. you know, how they healed yeah. their life with recovery and all of that. I think Brad Pitt is on the cover of People this month talking about his, you know, addiction and healing. I mean, it's 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 pop psychology, it's pop culture yeah. now to understand addiction. It's kind of cool. It's like, well, I have a drinking problem. I go to these cool meetings, but when it comes to gambling or gaming, or sex, or compulsive or problematic behavior, then people say, well, it's volitional. It's, it's you're being willful. You're choosing to do these things because I can choose to not do it, and you can choose to do it. Well, you're right. That defines addiction. You know, if, and this is true, I'm not an alcoholic. I have many other addictive problems. I will go to dinner with friends and drink a half a glass of wine, and my alcoholic friends look at me and they say, aren't you going to finish that? 
or don't you want the whole bottle? You know, they really, and I look at them and I'm like, well, I get tired, I get a headache, you know, I don't really, yeah. and they look at me like, how, what? Like, you know, you're not going to, you paid for the whole glass, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't think that way. You know, I think about the consequences, how it's going to make me feel. I take medication. Maybe I shouldn't do because I'm not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So I think if you think, if you can bend your mind around the fact that I might look at sex differently than you do, that I might look at sex and my, I might look at gambling differently than you or video games or, and the, the difference is, is that you use it for fun. You use it for recreation. You go to dinner if you're not an alcoholic and you have a couple of drinks with friends because it's relaxing and fun. There are pictures of alcohol on cave drawings. We have always used alcohol as a drug to, for social bonding mm -hmm. and for intimate relationship. I mean, that's always been there. Um, how uh, it's always been there. Uh, so if you are someone who is not an addicted person, you know, you kind of, uh, you, you naturally don't like me. Uh, I don't, I'm not an alcoholic. So I don't think about, should I stop drinking? Should I watch out for drinking? Is drinking going to be a problem for me? And I drink because it's social, you know, as I said, I, or at the end of the day, I might have a half, like literally half a glass of wine and I feel relaxed. I think those, there are healthy uses for alcohol in small doses, which, you know, is part of human nature, even though it isn't necessarily good for our bodies. But if you're an addict, you don't drink because it's socially acceptable mm -hmm. and because it's fun and it helps you connect with people and relax. You drink to feel okay. Yep. And you have sex to feel okay. And you gamble to feel okay. So the reasons that addicts turn to addictive behavior is very different than other people turning to the same behaviors. And it's not a problem. And what's very hard for human beings to wrap their head around is someone can think profoundly differently than you do. We just assume that people think the way we right. do. So if I didn't want to have sex with 20 strangers and drink myself under the table, as a healthy person, I would just say, well, I'm not going to do that. And you're right. As a healthy person, if I did that, I would be being irresponsible and making bad choices. Mm -hmm. but, as a, but as an addict, I'm not drinking, using and having sex to have fun. I'm doing it to emotionally escape to tolerate my feelings, to deal with all of that emotional stuff without having to turn to people. So for an alcoholic or the or a sex addict, the behavior is more about soothing themselves, calming themselves, distracting themselves. And that's not the same pre reason that most people drink, use, and have sex. So when healthy people look at us, they say, oh, you must be doing this because you're bad people or you just don't feel like stopping or you don't care about other people or you're and I just understand that an addict thinks differently. My mind and what I'm searching out when I'm looking for escape is not talking to a good friend and watching Netflix. It's I want to go out and get loaded. I want to pick up 300 people and completely lose myself in that behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of the problem with addiction is that people who are not addicts and especially with behaviors, you don't have to go in that casino and spend your kid's college fund. You know, you could just not go. No, I can't not go. You know, I want to not go. It's I, I can't not pick up that drink. I can't not. And this is how I soothe myself, how I comfort myself, how I escape. And but I can't tell anyone about it because they're going to think I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. So I hide it and I keep it secret and all of that. So this disconnect in our culture between what really and forget sex addiction, any addiction. Why don't these people do it differently? What healthy people understand is we don't have a choice. Um. I think, by the way, the, the, the best way I understand sex addiction is to look at it like an eating disorder. You know, if you have an eating addiction or a compulsive problem with eating, food is a naturally occurring substance. I want people to eat. <laughs> if you don't eat, you're not going to do sure. very well. But if you eat by, by standing in the buffet line and going back 12 times, you know, three times a week and having a lot of Haagen-Dazs in the house, you're going to get really sick. If you eat in such a way that you vomit every time you, you know, after dinner, you're going to get very sick. Your relationship to food is very different, but the answer to stopping an eating problem is not the same as alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. The answer to alcohol and drugs is no mood altering substances, period. But the solution to an eating disorder is not to never eat again. And it's the same with sexual problematic sexual behavior. I don't want people to never have sex again. I want them us to work to find healthy sexual choices for them, just like you work with someone who has an eating problem to find healthy choices. So this is the hard part about having an eating problem or a sex problem that is compulsive or addictive, is that we have to face on a regular basis the, the, the billboards, the people walking by, the sexy movies, the, you know, whatever it is, going to the beach. And everybody 
tolerates, manages, and enjoys watching people. You know, mm -hmm. it's part of human nature. But that's not how our brains work. As an addict, I want to see it. I want to then I want to do it. Then I want to find it. Then I want to, you know, orgasm. Then I want to just do all this stuff with it. And looking at the same stimulations that you know are a nice distraction to you drive me to want to hurt myself and do the things that are mm -hmm. bad for me. And so how do I teach people to manage and tolerate all the sexual triggers that all of us human beings have and stay on a track of healthy sexual behavior? It's very much the same as how do I teach someone to go to Thanksgiving dinner and not eat everything that's on the table? How can I keep, because it's a natural recurring function, how do we keep people within the reins of health while they're carrying out naturally functioning, natural function of their body? And that is not the same as drugs alcohol, gambling, video, because you can survive just fine without doing any of those things. Um, the path to healing and recovery is different for those of us who have naturally occurring functions that have run off the rails into addiction. And I think that when you put that piece together with the challenges that most people have understanding the addict's mind, most people will say, oh, that's sex, that food, they've just overeat. Mm -hmm. They're just fat. They just don't, they have no control. Mm -hmm. They're not like me. They don't diet. They don't exercise. Well, maybe they do. But they're so broken that they can't, they'll exercise all day and eat the right food. And then at night, they'll have a quart of, quart of ice cream waiting for them. And then everyone walks around them and says, well, you seem to eat fine. I don't understand why you're so heavy. Because they eat in secret. You know, they eat, they hide it. They comfort themselves in secret. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit I think about when I think about eating disorders and sexual disorders uh, that are compulsive and addictive, I can see they have so much parallel. Yeah. And interestingly, and I'll shut up about this. Um, I've worked in a bunch of programs. In fact, I was the first person to create a compulsive and addictive sexual program for women, um, which, you know, nobody thinks women have sexual right. problems. Nobody thinks women are sexually compulsive. But trust me, they are not in the same ways we are because they don't have testosterone. But but trust me, a woman who has sexual abuse and other kinds of things in childhood will make really poor decisions over and over again related to sex because that's her issue. And when I opened up this program, what I didn't expect is this thing we called co-addiction, when two addictions exist at the same time and someone runs from drugs to eating or from gambling to sex or when they put two things together. And one of the really significant things that I saw in the women's programs is that women would bounce back and forth between food and sex. Mm. You know, women would compulsively eat. And then when they were lonely, you know, they would have a lot of sex. And then they'd have some experience where they got in a relationship with someone and they'd lose all this weight because they were really happy enjoying the relationship. And then the relationship didn't work out and they went back to the. So they go back and forth between food and sex in ways that men don't. Mm. Um, men are much more focused on the sex, um, on the sexual behavior uh, or uh, combining that with substance use. Very interesting. So, you know, I wanted to, to ask you a question about, you know, when you, you talk about the symptoms. So, uh, for the, the analogy that I'll use is maybe the tip of the iceberg, how we see it played out, like the, the um, you know, all of that being the, the acting out and, and the, well, the addiction, the addiction is the tip of the iceberg. The addiction yes. is the part that everyone's worried about, right. the part that everyone sees, but what's underneath is all that trauma from the past. Right. And so some of the things that I hear you saying is talking about when you talk about right self-soothing, emotional regulation, um, and, and also the ability to experience intimacy with other individuals, not necessarily even just sexually. So you've got these two things of what's happening inside yeah. of me when my natural course of emotions happen through the day, I don't have the toolbox and, and also maybe my chemicals are off kilter, you, you name it. I'm what I how well, I, I have genetic it. issues. Different. I mean, my mom was mentally ill and, you know, I have depression. I mean, there are pieces of this that carry through generationally. Mm -hmm. They may not be addiction, but there are different kinds of emotional issues that what support addiction. Right, right. It, but I interrupted you. No, it's okay. And so, sorry. no, so, um, you know, when I, because you, you were drawing the, this, um, this ex comparison to uh, sex sex addiction or, you know, intimacy disorders and things and how a normal person might look at it and say, you know, why can't you, the self-control and all those things, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in looking at those two pieces, aside from the addiction part, um, the ability to self-soothe and use healthy coping to regulate 
my own emotions and then also the relational piece. Those two things I know are so important. And those are the things that I think those underlying things that we ha that, that have to be tackled when helping someone to heal um, that I think most people don't really understand are the driving force, uh, right? So when you look at helping someone to heal and you're looking at how they how they relate and attach to other people and also how they deal and re deal with and regulate their emotions. What does that, what can you paint a picture of what that looks like? Uh, you know, how do you approach that for someone sure. suffering from or struggling with uh, these types of things? Well, Patrick, what you're really talking about is how do you heal an addiction? I mean, yeah. How do you help somebody come to peace with it and change their behavior? And I run a treatment center called Seeking Integrity, mm -hmm. and I've run a, and created a lot of them. This one's mine. Um, and as you know, the word integrity is in there because it has to do with, you know, bringing yourself into being one person, all that. But if you run down the list of what we do in treatment, it's kind of fairly simple. You know, we get someone in treatment who is clueless about what they've done, how it's affected other people. They may be angry that they're there. Like, my problem isn't that bad or, you know, it's just my spouse who's. But very quickly, what we start to do is point out the, the, the disparities, the, the distortions in their thinking. Well, you want a happy family life and you want to have this kind of job, but you drink all day. You know, you say you want to live your life this way or, or you say you love your kids, but you're never around, you know, because you're using or you're having sex and affairs. So what we begin to do is in a, in a consistent and, and an informed way, very deliberate, go through what's not working in their life and put it back into because you're drinking, because you're using, because mm -hmm. and then they begin to see, oh, this is why my life is so screwed up. And they, you know. The problem with being a, a, someone who hasn't understood addiction, but they are an addict, is that the, the problem that they have in life, they blame on everything else. Mm. You know, if I'm an alcoholic and I get a DUI, I'm going to say it was the wrong street. It was the cop. It was my red car. You know, it was that they're giving a lot of tickets this month, but it's never going to be my drinking yep. because that's what I'm protecting. That's my sole source of feeling better in life. The healthy person gets a DUI and says, oh, well, I better not drink and drive, you know, like, they, you know, I better have my friends keep the keys and I better take an Uber, you know, all that stuff. So um, I have no idea what I'm saying this. Why? Can you remember? Oh, you well, I was asking. All of that yeah, was? no worries. Oh, treatment. Yep. I remember. Yep. Right. I got it. So we help people move those through those distortions. And once they really get a sense of what their behavior, drinking, sex, gambling, whatever it is, has cost their life, they get very depressed and they get in a lot of shame. And they start hating themselves. Like, what did I do? And because they're in touch with what they've really done. And that's very painful. And that is their shame. And I have to move them from them, from I'm a bad person to I'm a broken person. Because bad people, I can't help. There are really good people who do bad things. And then they feel terrible about them. And I can help you if you do something you feel terrible about, get better. Because you don't want to feel terrible about mm -hmm. it again. But understand in treatment, we make people feel terrible about it. Not that we're... It's all from the truth. We're just showing them their truth in a way they haven't willing to look at it. And then they fall into shame and self-hatred. And then we say, hey, but wait a minute. This isn't, didn't come because you meant to hurt people. This didn't come about because you're a bad person. This came about because this is how you soothe yourself. Mm -hmm. This is how you try to feel better about yourself. This is how you try to escape difficult feelings. And how did you learn that? And they look back. I have a client right now in Seeking Integrity who says, you know, uh, the only person who was allowed to get angry in my family was my dad. Mm -hmm. And he would drink and he would get angry. And if I got upset, I just had to be very quiet and hide in my room. Well, that person now has a compulsive masturbation problem. And guess what? There was no one in the family who would listen to them. They had no place to express their feelings. They learned that masturbation made them feel better. Mm -hmm. And it was something that they could do alone. And not just masturbation, but fantasy mm -hmm. and disappearing into your head. You know, you can be five years old and use fantasy and spacing out and disappearing to feel better. And I think for the sex addict, for the drug addict, that idea of disappearing into the fantasy about what I'm going to do and how great it's going to be. And I can't wait to get to the dealer's house or I can't wait to get that affair mm -hmm. partner. That excitement and that distraction leads me to carrying it out. But what it does for me internally is it calms me down. It refocuses me. It does many of the things that I had to learn when I was young because I wasn't safe. And when we get people to begin to understand that it's not they don't have an addiction because of who they are. They have an addiction because of what happened mm -hmm. to them. Then I can move forward. Then they say, oh, well, I'm not a bad person and I have these behaviors and they're clearly a problem. How do I get better? 
And that's when the treatment starts about, well, this is how you enter that situation. And this is how you can get out of the situation. And we do relapse prevention. But the most important part of treatment for me, bar anything, is the community that gets built among the patients. You know, I run a residential program. I can tell you that there's nothing that I say or do that helps that client more than when they go back to the house at night. And it's really nice and they're well taken care of because we don't want them complaining about the food. We want them dealing with what they have to deal with. And they get back to that house and someone's really angry about something that happened to group. And somebody else is crying about what happened in their childhood. And these men come together and they become the family that we never had. They listen to each other. They support each other. They don't judge each other. And for the first time during treatment, if it's done right, these people have a feeling of, oh, this is what it's like to reach out to others and be comforted. This is what it's like to be a part of a family that supports me. And that is our recovery family. And what we do with that is we transition the community. You know, This is the first time many of our clients have felt good in connection to others. I have a client again that's seeking integrity who came into the room for treatment, sex addiction. And he was in group and he was just, he didn't really want to talk to anyone. He was distant. He was kind of looking down at everyone. That's how he is in life. And what happened was, is the community, the other guy said to him, you're not really engaged. You're not really involved mm -hmm. with us. You're not talking about your problems. Well, you know, we are, why don't you? And he got it from them that he wasn't part of the community. And then he realized that his loneliness in life was what he was recreating in treatment with these men. And we pulled him into the relationship with those men. And guess what? He started smiling. He started engaging. That arrogance went away. He showed humility because he was, we had taught him how to be in connection with others and get his needs met. Because entire, his entire life, he thought, I, can, I just got to do this on my own. No one's going to really care about me. I'm not worth, you know. Well, I think what most people understand about addiction is what lies underneath is a lot of self-hatred and a lot of shame. Yeah. I don't believe that I am worth people making me feel better. What comes out of those difficult childhoods is a belief that not that I had these awful parents. I mean, no six-year-old says, oh, mom was drinking and dad had an eating disorder and that's why I'm alone. You know, a six-year-old says, what's wrong me. with me that I'm not getting this love and attention? And that is shame. So if the successful resolution of a really healthy and engaged childhood is self-esteem, which means I can walk around in the world and say, I am worth asking questions. I am worth reaching out to people. I am worth them responding to me. And if you don't respond to me, I'll go to someone else. That's, that's healthy self-esteem. Mm. That's learned. But if a child learns that they're not going to be responded to, they're not going to be engaged, they're not going to think it's them. They're going to think what's wrong with me. And that's shame. Addicts walk around with this constant feeling of not being worthwhile, not being lovable, not being good enough. Now, we hide that by, you know, telling everyone how amazing we are, right. a lot of narcissistic behavior. But underneath, there's this inherited early life experience that people are not, that I'm not worth people supporting me and trusting me. And so when we bring people in a good treatment environment and in 12-step meetings, a good therapy into each other's lives, look, when I sit in group and I tell you the worst most embarrassing things that I went out there and did sexually, you know, not arrestable, not illegal, but just icky, awful, mm -hmm. terrible. I expect everyone to say, oh my God, like, how could you do that to yourself? How could you do that to your family? And in this community, people, because it's, we construct the community, mm -hmm. they will say things like, you know, you were really courageous for sharing and talking about that thing that you feel so terrible mm -hmm. about. And I'm so impressed that for the first time in your life, you're talking about the problem that you have and, you know, you're not and what's happening and coming back to you is support. And all of a sudden they realize that what they do is different than who they are. And I think that's a huge piece in treatment is what I do. I hate other people hate, but who I am may be a really lovely person mm -hmm. and pulling those pieces apart and then having it validated in community is what I want out of treatment. And then relapse prevention, looking at trauma, that's, that's the icing on the cake. But learning inside of myself that I can depend on other people and they will be there for me, even if I tell them the worst things about me, is really the beginning of the healing in, in my belief system. I couldn't agree more. And Does that help? Yes. And, uh, you know, am I going to make you cry? <laughs> you know, I can't tell you how often I have uh, a such a, such meaningful conversations on this podcast. And um, I try, I really, I hold back the tears. But yes, it is. It's one of those things that because you struck such a chord with me. 
Um, and everything you just outlined just now. And I think that so many of us can relate whether even, even if not being an addict to some extent, um, I think that there are probably a lot of people out there that had good parents, but something happened in childhood to make them feel like, like you said, um, that they might not be able to hold on. I have to interrupt you, Patrick. I have to interrupt you because there are no bad parents. My parents were broken yeah, and they were very challenged. Um, most people that I work with who will talk about their early experiences being violent or being abusive mm-hmm. or uh, those caregivers were, they had awful experiences yeah. growing up. This is what we call intergenerational problems. You know, I learned to be an angry person because I grew up in a certain environment. I learned to drink because it's genetic. I, you know, and then I pass all that behavior and, and experience onto mm-hmm. my family so um anyway i don't know what no you're saying, it's okay thank you for saying that it. i mean that that very important uh piece there and highlighting it so um you know i think that uh sex addiction or not addict or not so let's talk about family yeah can we talk about yeah. families yeah because that is really and I, I don't mean to change the subject and believe me if you want to write me <laughs> i'm rob at seekingintegrity.com um i do free absolutely free workshops you know i i really believe we'll get to families in a second but i want to say that one of my greatest beliefs is that and understanding is that we you and me patrick are incredibly fortunate mm-hmm. Most folks will never make it to a treatment center. Most folks will never make it to therapy. Most folks will never make it a 12-step meeting or even maybe read a book on addiction. But if I can go out there like you are doing right here, and we can give people an opportunity to grow and understand and heal without having to spend a penny, without having to walk into some church basement where they don't know anybody, but we can bring it into their homes and their cars and their lives, and we give it away. That's my greatest gift. I want to reach the person who may never have any resources, who may never have, but they suddenly understand what the problem is mm-hmm. and they stop hating themselves and start working on it. That, that to me is the gift of being able to do stuff like this. Um, yes. Yeah. And that really, uh, that resonated with me so much. Um, because I mean, and I know that you, you do so much like this for the community to make Mm -hmm. your experience and knowledge available to people that, again, like you said, aren't giving a cent, you know, that from the groups that you, the online groups that you lead, you know, all, all those things, um, and doing, you know, your own podcast, it's, it truly is. I mean, like it's, it puts meaning behind, um, meaning behind everything that's happened in your life, in my life. I mean, it's why I don't know about you, but it's why I do what I do. Well, I think there are two pieces to that. You know, one is, uh, well, one is I certainly want people getting the message. Um, The second one is you don't get the message in this universe today in one platform. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to be on YouTube. I have to write books. I have to do podcasts. I have to write a blog because if I want to get the word out, I can't just be in one place. I have to be everywhere Mm -hmm. because that's how our world works. In fact, when people come to treatment, I swear to God, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if someone came into treatment center, they would say, you know, a really good friend recommended your place to me. And then my therapist thought it was a great idea. So so I decided to come here and I read your brochure and I decided to come here. It doesn't work that way. When clients come into our treatment center, they say, I saw you on YouTube. Then I listened to your Mm -hmm. podcast. Then I picked up one of your books. Then I realized I wanted to call. So in order to reach people, we have to do what we're doing, regardless of um, of the motivations behind it. And by the way, the reason that I have almost a million, I have to say that we have 900 and some odd, da- sorry, we have 900,000 downloads wow. on the show, on the podcast, 900,000, almost a million downloads on sex, love and addiction. I really believe the reason we are so popular is people want to listen. They, they want to talk about clothes and 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 culture and tv shows and you know they want to talk and politics they want to talk about all that stuff but there are deeper things that people want to hear about and we you know i'm interested in getting beneath the fluff Mm -hmm. and talking about the really serious things by accessing these same platforms that people do for entertainment Mm -hmm. and you know what people are i was right people are hungry to learn about healing and they just don't know where to find it and so yes to your point um i started a website a number of years ago and um I'll, I'll say what it is. 
because it's free. It's called sexandrelationshiphealing.com, sexandrelationshiphealing.com. And I brought on therapists, what I would call a bunch of lazy therapists <laughs> who needed work. And I said, you know what? Would you be willing to volunteer an hour each week to talk to male sex addicts, to talk to female sex addicts, to, to moderate a group of women who've been betrayed? by their husbands or whatever. And we now have about 14 groups up. No one, char there's no charge for any of it. Mm -hmm. The people volunteer, the moderators are not doing therapy, they're containing the space, they're educating, they're supporting people. So people said, well, why don't you charge for that? Why would I want to charge for that? Do they charge you for Facebook? I mean, what brings people in is, oh, I don't have to pay for it, but then I can learn a lot, or I don't have to mm -hmm. pay for it. And, and that, you know, getting, the support of other people that you and I know are trying to heal themselves and getting them to do what we call service by holding a space for people who are new to come in and say, I don't know anything about this, but this, my husband cheated on me for 12 years. And um, that to me is, you know, when I was younger, I used to sponsor people, which we say in the 12 star program, is a way to help one or two people mm -hmm. as they come along, you know, find their way as we found our way. Mm -hmm. I sponsor hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. You know, and, and that to me, you know, it's like taking the work that we do and we're taught to do to the level that we can do it. You know, you get to sponsor and teach all these people who are listening. And I think that is a gift that we both get to share. I don't mean to go off on this forever, <laughs> yeah. but this does lead into the topic, which is families yep. and loved yep. ones, which is something I want to talk about. Thanks for joining us for part one of Sex Addiction and Intimacy Disorders with Dr. Rob Weiss. I am so glad that you have joined us and hope that you stick around next week for part two. It's going to be some good stuff. With that, I will say, as I always do in closing, that it is never too late to start loving yourself and you're only one decision away from a completely different life. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 